0: Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Robert. How are you?
0: Doing very well. Uh, just so everyone knows, right at the beginning, this uh, we will not be having an episode next week, so... Check us out in two weeks and listen to this one. You still have a whole episode to listen to, to enjoy, but you will not have one next week. So just getting that out of the way right up front. We have lots of stuff that we want to talk about this week, though. Jasmine is going to be talking to us about the end or, you know, I don't know, is it the end of the eviction moratorium? which is a federal moratorium but has huge impacts here in Kentucky, of course. I'm going to be talking about COVID, which is, of course, another huge story as it is every week. And we have a, a larger Quick Hits roundup, uh, some, some medium-sized stories and some follow-up things that we wanted to talk about uh, that will be a little bit more substantial than our normal Quick Hits segment. So, without any further ado, Jasmine, tell us about the eviction moratorium.
1: Okay, so this has been obviously going on. Since the beginning of COVID, since early 2020, we haven't really talked about it in depth. So I thought we would summarize what's going on with the federal eviction moratorium, how it affects Kentucky. And this is like a very, very condensed summary because there's a lot to this.
0: Right. Yeah. It's a a big, big story for sure.
1: Yeah. So with the federal eviction moratorium, it was set to end this week. Housing advocates and attorneys, ha, you know, have really been sounding the alarm about an eviction crisis for a pretty long time. Um, so at the start of COVID, many states, including Kentucky, had eviction moratoriums. Some were only like partial suspensions that didn't cover all renters, um, but there was always still federal protection under the CARES Act, although that still didn't apply to everyone only covered properties And the CDC eviction halt was also kind of watered down over time. So they began requiring a declaration that had to be sent to landlords. And so not everyone knew that they needed to do that. They also said in their questions page that eviction proceedings could happen. They just couldn't physically evict people. So this wasn't just like a blanket eviction protection.
0: And when you say it was watered down, was it watered down just because of, like, accommodations due to lawsuits or, you know, pressure from landlords? Or why did these rules change over time?
1: Things changed over time just as COVID changed.
0: Yeah, the CDC itself changed the rules, right? There wasn't, like, a...
1: Well, sort of. Like, the CARES Act changed the rules, too. Um, And then the CDC rules. No one really knew how it could be enforced. And so... They have this, like, frequently asked questions page that says, oh, you can have the eviction proceedings. You just can't physically remove people. But, like, no one really knew. Like, right. no one knew what they could do. And and that was their guidance, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's worth probably mentioning that the CDC has never in its history done an eviction moratorium. Uh, you know, it's like the center for disease control and I mean, good for them for doing it. Right. But like, it doesn't really fit their wheelhouse super well. It's like, they're used to like tracking Ebola and not like dealing with landlords. Um, so it was a little bit different. I mean, and, and, you know, but the other, the, the upshot of it is it was very unclear how it was kind of happening and caused a lot of chaos. Uh, even though probably at the end of the day, a lot more people were able to stay in their homes than would have otherwise, I guess.
1: Yeah. And so we're going to talk about the CDC having an eviction halt a little bit. Um, But first, just talking about the protections we had in Kentucky. So in Kentucky, we had an eviction suspension that was later revised to evictions only for failure to pay rent. And then later it turned into just a 30 day notice requirement. And after that, when it just became like a notice requirement, eviction proceedings spiked in Kentucky. So, like some of the links in the show notes, you know, have graphs that show like a big spike in October of 2020 and evictions. Um, and then data from Louisville showed that judgments were the most dense in the West End, which, mm-hmm. you know, are majority black neighborhoods. Um, so that's who this is disproportionately affecting mm-hmm. and records from the sheriff's office also showed that set outs and so set outs are the actual physical evictions when the sheriff's office comes and starts like moving your stuff um, those were being scheduled and, and I don't think we have a way to know if they happened but they were scheduling physical set outs which I, you know I'm not sure unless you're paying pretty close attention it, it's hard to know what has actually been going on
0: yeah. And I mean, this is all I mean, again, this is all very confusing because it's like proceedings are going on. But even if the judgment comes down against the renter, they're not set out like you mentioned. Uh, but those things were starting to be scheduled. Uh, but we don't know if they happened. Yeah. And so it sounds like it's it's kind of hard to get your arms around what's actually going on here.
1: Yes, exactly. So then also during all of this, landlords group started to sue and argue that the CDC did not have the authority to halt evictions. While these suits were pending, Congress gave CDC the authority under the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Um, but even with that ratified authority, the CDC lost several federal lawsuits and it eventually went to SCOTUS. The Supreme Court allowed the moratorium to stay in place only till in on July 31st, absent legislation. And legislation was not passed, so that's where we are up to this week.
0: Yeah, that's a story in and of itself the the re- legislation right. <laughs> not being passed. Yeah, and and that's very disappointing. It's it's really tough. I mean, you had really strong advocates, led by Cory Bush of Missouri, um, a lot of really great mm-hmm. uh, House and Senate members that were pushing to get some of this passed, but you know, with such a slim majority in the House, Democrats you know, couldn't get it done. And then, of course, even if they had gotten it done, it wouldn't have passed anyway, because this would have had to clear a filibuster. So, I mean, I, I think once, you know, Brett Kavanaugh ruled that that July 31st was going to be the last time, that was when we kind of knew that that was going on. Um, and I feel like there probably could have been more done by, you know, maybe the Biden administration or maybe from Congress to like, be more prepared for this day. But yeah, it definitely came. Uh, and then we all kind of started scrambling, right?
1: Right, and I mean, really, like each one of these bullet points here could really be its own story. The federal lawsuits could be their own story because I think one of my questions from all of this is, and I haven't read all of the opinions, but it's, it's unclear to me why SCOTUS said that the moratorium could only be extended through July 31st when Congress ratified the cdc's authority in that consolidated appropriations act i don't know what their reasoning for that is because the scotus order was only one page so uh, the lawsuits are their whole story congress and all of this is its own story it's all three (laughs) branches
0: of the federal government like it's the federal the executive and the judicial all all in one story yeah
1: exactly so just looking at you know What's going on in Kentucky? Kentucky in Kentucky, approximately 81 households owe 217 million dollars in rent. Wow. We we do have 570 million for renters assistance, um, which covers 12 months of unpaid rent and up to three months of future rent, and that comes from the CARES Act and also from the Emergency Rental Assistance Program. But the process here. Receiving assistance has been really slow. For example, Lexington has 4,000 applications for assistance, and they've only resolved 750 of them. Yeah. So so not only have the moratoriums been ever-changing and confusing, it's also been hard to get programs up and running for the people who need help, and it's been hard to get the funds distributed. And that leaves like landlords growing impatient right um and so that is another problem that landlords must agree to accept the assistance and that isn't always happening um so evictions are still happening because landlords aren't getting the funds distributed so they're going forward with evictions in some cases yeah um yeah but as far as like
0: Oh, go ahead. No, well, well, I'm just thinking, right, with uh, the administration of a program like this, you know, a lot of the people who are behind in their rent don't have like a lawyer on retainer or anything like this. And so <laughs> right. they, they depend on legal aid. And so with this huge need for legal assistance from poor people, uh, you know, legal aid is really stretched thin. And even if you fund legal aid, like even if you were like, OK, well, we're going to take some CARES Act money and give it to legal aid you know, those are temporary jobs. And somebody who has a lot of law school debt and wants to, you know, get a job as a lawyer, taking a temporary job in legal aid is probably not like the first your first choice. So it's like hard to fill those positions. So you, you kind of have a uh, cascading problems with with this entire situation, uh, which leads to a lot of this not getting resolved. Uh, you know, 750 out of 4000 applications just in Lexington alone. Now, we could have done better. I don't think that there's any doubt about it. There's excuses, and I'm a little sympathetic to it, but but that's that's a really really low percentage, especially when there's. I mean, it's so frustrating to read that like 217 million dollars in rent that's owed in Kentucky, and we have 500 like we have more than double, CARES Act funding to pay for all the back rent that's owed to landlords. If we could just find a way to get it distributed, and and we're struggling to do that.
1: Right, and. What you mentioned is, is something I was going to mention as well. Legal aid has hired new housing attorneys and paralegals. And then the article that I read said that Kentucky Housing Corporation had to train 80 new employees. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely a reason for why it's been hard to get these funds distributed quickly. Yeah. Um, so where we are now is that the federal moratorium was set to expire on August 1st. But the Biden administration has now extended it for an additional 60 days, but it, it doesn't cover everyone. The CDC says it covers parts of the U.S. that are experiencing substantial and high spread of coronavirus. Right. And so we've continued to just like complicate the orders and who it covers. And so we have another 60 days now. There are absolutely going to be legal challenge to it. Um, But, you know, I feel like this is something that Republicans have been doing for a long time, just like in Kentucky, you know, passing bills that they know might not pass constitutional muster and passing them anyways and and letting them get sorted out in the court.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you're exactly right. Republicans are are well known for this. But I think. My frustration with Republicans is when they do that just for political gain. I think Joe Biden is basically trying to, like, put more time on the clock.
1: An emergency crisis. And yeah, we're buying some time here.
0: And it's worth saying to, you know, a month ago when this ruling came down, COVID was in a very different place and and it looked like cases were really receding. And the reason the original reason for the CDC moratorium was for, for health and safety reasons. And, you know, the moratorium had to end at some point. uh, And then all of a sudden when Delta came around and all of a sudden we're experiencing this huge spread again, you know, we are in a place where that original justification for the CDC moratorium of, you know, we don't want to put people out on the street because that leads to more communal living, which causes more disease spread, is again relevant. So Mm -hmm. for the first time, I mean, really the first time that I've seen the Biden administration ever face, like, not having a plan for something like they seem like they're ready to message and like every plan is every everything they do is like really planned out and this is like the first time that it's been like a last second change you know i think it's a good change i'm glad they did it and i think it, it does really show a path forward for people like Corey bush who are backbenchers who don't have a lot of influence inside of the actual legislating process how they can actually get their their you know goals achieved because she really You know, set out to do this and did it, which is awesome. But yeah, it it does. It does seem like it will lose in court. But hopefully, uh, there will just be enough time on the clock so that people can either find something else to do, or maybe COVID will calm down um, a little bit in in the next month or so we will at least see.
1: Yeah. So I mean, what I have taken from all of this is that the government makes it really hard for poor people to get help. um, Even though, these moratoriums are good. They don't cover everyone. And I don't think everyone knows that Um, when you hear eviction moratorium, people may think that they're covered. And that's not true. You know, there's steps that they have to take, the landlord has to agree to it. And there's so many hoops for them to jump through. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the other thing is that evictions are definitely still happening. Um, Looking at data from Jefferson County, like They've been going on, not like normal, um, but proceedings have been started. Judgments have been handed down. We're not protecting everyone.
0: No, no, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, we're really failing in that. Um, To me, Jasmine, you know, the government, the government fails to protect people in these situations and and poor people are, are often the people who don't get the protections they need. And to me, this is a story about the starvation of the administrative state. Like we have administration that has to get done. I mean, we we allocated money to solve this problem, but we can't administrate our way out of this out of this hole. The issue is not the funding. The issue is the fact that we don't have people to to get the funding to the people, and that's an administrative challenge. Uh, and that's from you know generations of you know, people like Ronald Reagan saying, like, government's the problem, not the solution, or something like that, or, mm-hmm. you know, people, like, it, it has been, like, the Republican mantra to starve the, the government's ability to administrate programs. I mean, if you look at, I mean, just every Republican president, like, George W. Bush tried to shift, like, the administration of Medicaid, Medicare to, like, private companies, and was able to do that for the, the prescription drug benefit. And, and you know, there's a million ways that Donald Trump tried to, like, basically starve out the government. And every Republican governor we've had, I mean, Matt Bevin had his whole like red tape reduction that was like one of his his big initiatives and and of course red tape is just code for administration and and that's that's basically to me the story i i think you're exactly spot on to say the government doesn't protect poor people but the way in my opinion to protect more poor people is to have a better administrative state uh and and that's you know that's just right. yeah
1: <laughs> i mean like the 570 million dollars in available funds and we have maybe 200 and something million in assistance that people need and not there's still a lot of that left at this point
0: that's it's devastating that's just devastating that we have allocated the funding to solve the problem and yet we can't solve the problem yeah Mm -hmm. really sad Oof. All right, Jasmine. Well, that story was about COVID, but I'm going to talk a little bit more directly about COVID. And and the, I guess the main thing this week is that cases continue to increase last week, even including a day yesterday that had 1,800 new cases. Uh, this is definitely the worst outbreak that we're experiencing right now since the winter. So, Jasmine, you remember like back in the springtime and we were talking about like, will there be a fourth wave? And I remember I was like, looks like no, it looks like cases are continuing to go down. We are experiencing Mm -hmm. another huge wave. This is at this point, the second largest wave that we've seen of COVID cases in the United States and, and in Kentucky. So more than 70 counties in Kentucky are in that red zone, which is you know, more than 25 cases per 100,000. It's a lot more than just a, a month or so ago. And and some of those have really pushed past the 25 cases per 100,000. And you'll remember back in the winter that we had several counties that had like 300 plus you know, cases per 100,000 people. And, and right now, we actually have a couple. Uh, Clay County is our worst off with 108 cases per 100,000. I think that's our only... Or only county with more than 100. And, but but several counties down there next to, to Clay County in southeastern Kentucky are above 50. So that would be Jackson. They have 82. Laurel with 73. Knox, 56. Whitley, 55. Letcher, 59. And Floyd with 70. So that's Eastern Kentucky, and actually the Eastern coal fields, and the Western coal fields is in the same situation. Um, Muhlenberg County has 59 cases per 100,000. Hopkins has 53. Webster has 60. Uh, Henderson, which isn't really in the Western coal fields, but is close to it, um, that's at 53. And those are the ones out in Western Kentucky that are above uh, 50 cases per 100,000. And th- but there are a lot of other counties. Uh, close to the Western coal fields over there that have close to 50 and in the Eastern coal fields and really across the whole state. A lot of places are red and getting worse in our urban areas. Louisville is actually still in the orange zone for now. There were 23 cases per hundred thousand people in Louisville uh, as of as of Tuesday. uh, But that number is rising over time. Louisville had twelve hundred cases last week, and that's the first time we've had more than a thousand cases a week since February The Herald-Leader actually made a significant correction to Lexington's numbers uh, in the past week to show a change in their numbers over the past month. So I had been saying, like, oh, man, it looks like things are getting better in Lexington. Not the case. Uh, Lexington has, in fact, had increasing cases over the past month. Uh, At the end of June, there were 43 cases per week, and there were 640 last week. That's more than a tenfold rise. It is worth saying we are still about 60% of the peak that we had in the winter, So you will see states like Florida, Louisiana, across the country that are experiencing outbreaks on par with what they had this winter. That is not happening in Kentucky yet. So we are still significantly lower than what we were in the wintertime. But uh, yeah, we are still growing pretty quickly. Hospitalizations continue to rise. That matches the rise in cases. There were more than 700 Kentuckians in the hospital with COVID last week. So I'm actually... Taking it upon myself, I had been kind of reporting the death numbers from uh, some of the tracking websites that, you know, are a little spotty these days, because I think a lot of them like slowed down their operations um, over the summer when things looked like they were getting a lot better. So I've actually started recording the death statistics myself from the public health department. The, health, the public health department does not release a spreadsheet, uh, so I have to, you know, copy all these numbers down from a PDF. But I, I'm happy to do it. Uh, and uh, you know, I have been doing this a couple for a couple of months with with cases. But our deaths, actually, a 14 day uh, average deaths per day. Has actually decreased since mid July, so we are actually experiencing less death right now than we were uh, in in mid July. However, and this is something we repeat every week, deaths are a lagging indicator, and you know I, I measured it out today. When we had our worst time in the winter, it was about three weeks until we had our our, 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 our the the most deaths. So we had the most cases I think it was January 8th is what I think I saw and then we had our most deaths on January 30th so that that's about the lag that we're experiencing from from deaths From cases to death, so we are getting to be about three weeks out from when the Delta variant first started taking hold. So that's something I'm going to be checking really closely to see uh, if deaths do, in fact, start to rise like uh, like the cases did, starting about three weeks ago. And, And to me, that's a huge part of the vaccination story. Getting COVID. If you're vaccinated or getting COVID and and having a, a rough time, even if, you're, even if you're not vaccinated and recover, as long as you don't infect anybody else, I mean, to me, that's something that you can live with. But if it leads to death, that's, that is really the crux of why this issue has been a big, big deal. Um, this disease kills people, and if we can prevent this disease from killing people – we're in a much, much better place. And and to me, that story is getting ready to be written. So it's kind of what I'm looking for in the near future. So speaking of vaccinations, uh, they're on a a pretty significant month-long upswing. The the lowest point for vaccinations was kind of in mid-July, and our average number of daily vaccinations dropped to somewhere between 2,500 and 2,800, depending on which average you use. But since then, it's been rising steadily. And our, our new daily vaccine average is between, you know, 50 to 50. And six thousand cases or vaccines a day, which is you know a lot higher. That's that's more than double uh, what we were experiencing before. So those two numbers, too. Just if anybody is interested in like numbers, fifty-two fifty is our fourteen day average, and six thousand is our seven day average. So you're actually seeing an acceleration in the growth rate. So you know we're we're having more and more people get vaccinated. It's hard to say if that trend will continue, but yeah, that that is something we are starting to see here: more and more people getting vaccinated. So that's that's very good. It's very good. Louisville has actually seen a month straight of increases in dose one vaccines. We had 6500 last week. That was up from a low of 3600. So not quite doubling here in in Louisville, but pretty close to it uh, from from our low. We are really dangerously close here in Louisville to having 50% of people complete the vaccine series. That's just kind of a, a psychological milestone. Uh, you know, 50% isn't enough to prevent the spread of disease, but it would be nice to get there. There is still a very intense geographic, and when you're talking Louisville, that means racial divide in vaccine uptake. So 40212, which is like Northwest Jefferson County, um, up near like Shawnee Park. Uh, that they have a 36% first dose vaccination rate. That's very low. That would be low in any County, um, in any region of the state versus 40207. Is that your zip code, Jasmine? I don't know if that's your zip code or not. No, no, it's not. That's St. Matthew's. Yeah. It's Crescent Hill and St. Matthew's. I didn't know if Linden was also looped in there. Uh, anyways, they have a 70% vaccination rate, which is higher than anywhere else, any individual County in the whole state. So, so, you know, that's, that just goes to show you the divide here in, in Louisville. Across the state, far western Kentucky has the worst vaccination rates. There's two counties in the Jackson Purchase that have uh, less than a 25% vaccination rate, and the state reports first, first doses only. So that's you know just an incredibly low uptake in vaccinations. And and you know when you talk about Fancy Farm, and uh, we aren't we aren't really going to talk about that, but there was a, a, a slight dust up about Andy Bashir not going out to Western Kentucky to Fancy Farm. I mean. That's bad. And he has a kid that can't be vaccinated and going to uh, far western Kentucky and having people stand up and shout and spit all over people. Uh, <laughs> when you have a kid that can't get vaccinated, that's that's not what you want to do. That's not what you want to no. do. So so there you go. So far, the governor's response to the Delta rise has been to issue recommendations instead of mandates. Uh, you know, obviously, Andy Bashir was very brazen and brave in issuing mandates in the face of people hanging him in effigy literally in 2020. Uh, And he has not done that in 2021. Uh, The Courier Journal had a really nice analysis piece about why that is, uh, and kind of what are the political dynamics that are kind of guiding it. And to me, the basic conclusions that they they drew were that moving from, you know, no more masks just 60 days ago, to basically reinstating a mask mandate right now would create political whiplash. I, I tend to agree with that, even though I do think the science has changed. I don't think our politics can handle that kind of, of, of change. So I, I do think it was probably a mistake for the CDC to slacken their guidance so much at the time, even if it seemed appropriate just to be a little bit more cautious. hindsight's 2020. 20. I, I understand that but uh, but I do think that that was a mistake. But yeah, I know. Also, I just think mask mandates wouldn't be followed in places where there isn't significant uptake in masking right now already. And that's kind of the the tack that a lot of kind of Democratic leaders in, in conservative states have had. You will obviously get a set of people that will wear a mask if there's a mandate versus if there's a recommendation, but uh, probably not too much. At the end of the day, everybody's just got to get vaccinated. That That's providing significant protection from the Delta variant. I heard today there's a, a Lambda variant. Uh, that's, uh, I, <laughs> I guess we're just going to do this forever. Uh, but, you know, nothing really known about that one as far as I can tell yet. But, you know, all of the variants we've seen, the vaccine works really well against them. That doesn't necessarily guarantee into the future, but if we can stop the disease from, you know, existing, then we can stop it from mutating. Um, so, anyways, go get vaccinated if you can. Actually, no, even you you can. You can go get vaccinated. Make the time, make it happen. Tell your mamas and your your really your mamas probably are vaccinated. <laughs> Tell your parents they need to get vaccinated. That's the big and also like your friends. Uh that's the people in in uh the 30s, 20s, 30s and 40s are the ones that are really struggling to get vaccinated right now. Woof, Jasmine, any any COVID insights right now? I know you you had planned to actually do some stuff in the next couple of weeks. How are you feeling about it now?
1: yeah um it's all up in the air i think yeah right now um and my my office does have a new mask mandate so i've gone back to being masked most of the time
0: yeah um my daughter ran a fever for the first time in her life uh Ooh. just last week um it's pretty scary no covid uh it was much grosser it was a you know, stomach issue. But yeah, that that's really scary. You know, she's just a baby. And that's that's tough to watch. But, uh, you know, just got to get vaccinated. Everybody's got to do it. Okay, Jasmine, we do have some more substantial quick hits we wanted to talk about this week. So the first up is that Alice Forge Kerr has said that she is not going to run for reelection to her Senate seat. She has served in the Senate since 1999. And you know, if you're a historian of Kentucky politics, the Forgy name. That's one of the most storied in Kentucky Republican politics. In recent years, she's kind of become one of the more like moderate Republican senators. Uh, You know, the rest of her caucus, I think it's absolutely fair to say, has shifted right. uh, The rest of the Republicans in the Kentucky Senate. But her district, which is entirely within Fayette County, has definitely shifted left. You know, they're not like, you know, going to vote for AOC or something, but they're definitely further to the left than they were, 20 years ago you know this is you know she's served for 22 years and with that dynamic of her kind of in the middle her caucus swinging one way and her district swinging the other i kind of understand why she wants to hang it up uh i think that this is probably the best pickup for uh, opportunity for democrats in 2022 currently the only person running for the seat is the guy that owns the brewed coffee shop in lexington which really flaunted the uh the the mask mandate and other uh, COVID rules during 2020. He's running on the GOP side, but it probably will draw a lot of attention on the Democratic side as well. Yeah. Um, What do you think, Jasmine? Uh, Lexington seat, you think the Democrats have a chance here or any thoughts about Alice forky retiring?
1: I thought the Democrats had a chance in Lexington and then 2020 did not go well in seats that were Democratic in seats that we thought might flip Democratic. So ooh, I don't know. I'm not feeling optimistic about it. I think that Paula Setzer kissick will run again. Um, I don't know if she'll have to run against someone else, but um, yeah, I don't know if we can do it.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, if you're an optimist, you would say that like 2020 had Trump on the ballot. He brought out a bunch of people who voted who don't normally vote Twenty. 20- 18, this was a really close race. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think uh, a lot of outside groups, Paula Kissick obviously ran really hard, but like, I think with a little bit more focus on this race, uh, we could have flipped it in 2018. Um, this is a race that, that falls in the midterm. So it also is a, a race that, you know, Democrats could hold probably, um, at least given current political dynamics. So, you know, I don't know, there's reasons to be optimistic. But you you know, Jasmine, you, you're always here to bring yeah. us back to earth. You're-
1: you're right. It is a winnable seat. It's one of the more winnable seats. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know.
0: Yeah. Also, Alice Forgy Kerr, you know, now that she's retiring, I think we can admit that she's she's a nice lady. She went to church with both of us when we were in Lexington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you know, always always been a little fond of her. Um, but yeah, she also announced she had COVID, uh, even though she was vaccinated. She was a breakthrough case there. So get well soon, Alice Forgy Kerr. All right. Updating a story from last week, it appears that Kentucky State University Board of Regents awarded uh, then-President M. Christopher Brown a brand-new four-year contract only two months before he you know, abruptly resigned. Uh, in addition, the board awarded him a significant sum of bonus pay without really documenting why. You know, this is a story that was in the Herald-Leader, which has been following the story and, and writing about the story very closely. It's a lot of intrigue here. It just seems very corrupt and very sad. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of messed up. You know, go back and listen to last week's show if you want some more context about the Kentucky State University and, and its kind of situation right now. But, but a lot that needs to get resolved there. Okay, Jasmine. So that's updating a story from last week. But I also wanted to update a much, much older story than that one. And that's the that the University of Louisville has settled its suit against former President James Ramsey for $800,000, which is, you know, a, a tiny fraction of what it spent litigating the case. I think they spent like $6 million litigating this case. You know, Ramsey, if you need a reminder, which you may because it's been a while since we updated this. Ramsey resigned in disgrace after it was discovered discovered that he was using the University Foundation for any number of things which he probably shouldn't have been using it for. Um, I did read one analysis of the story that said, like, this is a a case that serves as a wake up call to foundations and organizations to enact tighter financial controls over their, their organizations. Cause I mostly think that Ramsey got away with this by saying like, there wasn't any rules saying I couldn't do this. Uh, so he did it. Uh, yeah, Jasmine, I, this was in like maybe our third episode ever, right? hmm.
1: Yeah. Our, when our podcast started, we talked about James Ramsey and U of and we talked a lot about Bevin reorganizing the boards.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like you probably talked about James Ramsey for like a year and a half. Um, yeah, yeah. This was kind of one of your one of the stories that that you you followed pretty closely. So yeah, uh, it's <laughs> eight hundred thousand dollars, and I think it's probably the book's closed on it. Um, yeah. I mean, at the time, we really kind of thought James Ramsey might go to jail, and I don't even think any of this money's coming out of his pocket. I think it's mm-hmm. going to get paid out of an insurance fund um, that they had for liability over the fi- the foundation. So, not only are they getting eight hundred thousand dollars, they're probably going to have a higher rate of insurance that they have to pay. So. Yeah, uh, big loss for U of L yeah, there. Yeah, not great. Not, for UofL. not, not great. Not, go well. Yeah, not great. For, I mean, yeah. Hopefully, it does serve as a wake up call for the other foundations and, and groups across the state with large endowments that, like, yeah, have some rules. Like, that's important. Mm-hmm. All right. Last thing. Um, new reporting from Chris Otts at WDRB shows that Derby City Gaming, which is one of those historical horse racing slots parlors, is now Churchill Downs' biggest grossing facility. That's even more than all of their actual casinos. Horse racing in the actual Churchill Downs makes significantly less revenue than, like, traditional casinos. Um, You know, Churchill Downs is a place in a really historical location, but the company is a gambling company that makes money, uh, most of their money doing a lot of other things. Um, Yeah, so the, the upshot for me here is that, like... This is something that's making a ton of money for Churchill Downs, and obviously they're not going to shift away from it with their new legal authority that they received from the state. So the legislature really does need to go back and update the tax rates on these machines next year. I mean, they said that Churchill Downs has basically agreed to like some level of higher taxation. They need to take whatever Churchill Downs accepted and triple it. <laughs> that's that's basically my opinion. Uh, yeah. Uh, any thoughts? Have you have you ever been to any of these historical horse racing spots? I have not. Yeah, I got invited to one, uh, and I said no thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, slot machines are super boring, whatever. Uh, I'm not going to that. Uh, anyways, yes. All right, Jasmine. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, how can people get a hold of us?
1: They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice, We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash Podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.